when I was in the elementary school, uh, upper elementary, lower middle school, we got some new furniture at my house. It was a big deal. We had the same furniture that we moved down from New York with, and my mom was very, very excited about having this. And one of her rules for her children was, do not make a mess of my new furniture. So being the extremely intelligent person that I am, I took the opportunity, not even a day into owning this furniture, to grab a bottle of whiteout and play with it on the couch. I don't remember what I was doing. I do remember I was probably too old to be messing around with this and not putting those dots together. But uh, if you're familiar with the way the children operate, I spilled said whiteout on couch. Now, that was a problem because I remember my mom saying, don't make a mess of the couch. So knowing that I didn't want to get in trouble, I decided I was going to wipe it up as best I could. And when I did and looked at it and went, she'll never know. Not 30 seconds later, she walked in the, in the room and went, what is this on my couch? So not wanting to take the responsibility for what I had done, uh, I looked at my mom and said, you know, Matt, my brother, was on the couch with some whiteout very recently. I saw him there just a few minutes ago. So she went off to go find my brother, and I went off to go take a shower, pleased with the fact that I was not going to be punished for what I had done. Didn't take a great detective to discover that wasn't true. My brother was very confused at first as to why he was uh, in trouble. Uh, but about 10 minutes later, and I, and I say 10 minutes because the Lord was being gracious while I took my shower to not be immediately killed, uh, my, my mom came to me and said, let's chat. Now, all of that came about because I wanted to shift the blame for what I had done onto somebody else. But I think if we're all honest in here, that is not a unique situation to me. At least I hope not. I'm, I'm, I'm not the, the odd person out here. Uh, blame shifting is something we're all familiar with. You want to see a great example of it, look for reruns of the TV show Cops. My favorite excuse of all times was a gentleman who was being arrested for finding narcotics in his pants, and he looked at the police officer and said, you cannot arrest me. It's not my fault. You see, these aren't my pants. <laughs> sure. Now... We, we may chuckle at that, but again, the, the idea and the desire to pass off the buck for what we have done is, is ingrained in us. It, it, it is something that is prevalent through all of the human race. You see, we don't want to take the consequence for the actions that we have done, and so we blame others for the situation, for why we made the decision we made, or for the consequences as a result of our own actions. Hey, we're more than willing to take credit for things when things go well, right? Oh, th that was a fantastic thing. Let me tell you who did that. It was right here, this guy. Hey, aren't I great? Hey, but if, if something goes south, it's usually, well, that's not my fault. That's not my department. Or, you see, it's really not my fault because of what they did. Hey, we try and minimize the impact 
or deny culpability in, in our actions. Okay? And this very same idea is found here uh, if in, in the New Testament. If we look in the book of James, our text this morning is going to be James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. James 1, 13 through 18 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the existence of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of firstfruits among his creatures. Really quickly, to give some context in the book of James, we know that the book of James was written by James. It is the first word in the text. If you look in chapter 1, verse 1, we see James, identified as the author. We also see he is writing to what he describes as the 12 tribes who were dispersed abroad. This would have been ethnically Jewish individuals, and based on the context of the letter, we know he's writing to believers. So this is James writing to dispersed Jewish believers early on in the church. And the occasion for writing, it comes back to the idea that persecution has begun to start in the church. It hasn't reached anywhere near the level it's going to. Things are going to get really difficult for the early church. But things have started, and James is writing his letter to these Jewish Christians to encourage them in their faith. He writes a book of, we call them tests, a practical wisdom that a believer can look at and examine against their own life to see if, in fact, their faith is genuine. Okay? And to take comfort from that fact if they see that their faith is, in fact, genuine. Okay? The first 12 verses of James's epistle, he starts right out into these tests. Okay? He picks up in verse 2 and runs all the way down through verse 12 with the test of perseverancing through trials. And we see in verse 2, he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. So he moves right into this, into this encouragement, this example of biblical Christianity that we should look at and take comfort if our lives are matching up. And we're going to be looking at this second test that he gives. Again, the first one in verses 2 through 12 is that persevering in trials. This is the test of blame and temptation. Okay, whose fault is it? when we're tempted to sin and when we fall into sin? Is it someone else's fault? Is it some external force acting on us? Or is it our fault? Well, James makes it pretty clear very early on, it's our fault. Thank you for coming. We can go up to the service now. No. Our text this morning, we're going to see three things. We're going to see the source we're going to see my outline actually right down my head. A salute uh, no, that's the three. A source, the steps, and a solution for temptation. And what is the source of temptation? What are the steps involved? And what is the solution to beat it? 
Okay, the first, again, is the source, found in verses 13 and 14. I'm going to read them again. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Right off the bat, James makes it clear. Do not blame, first of all, God for temptation. Okay, the Greek word translated here, tempted, is perismas. Okay, it is the exact same Greek word James uses in verse 2 of this epistle that is translated as tests, or trials, rather. He said, when he says, consider it all joy, my brethren, that is shining in my eye, when you encounter various trials. Okay, that word we translate trials is the same word we have here in verse 13 as tempted. Well, why is it translated differently? Okay. Well, it comes down to context. You see, you see in verse 2, there is a positive context for this word. This is the fascinating thing about the Greek language. is It's not like our language. Our language is simple. Uh, and I'll be the first to admit, I'm a simple person. Okay. Greek carries a lot of different nuances to it. And so the context will actually showcase the word's meaning. And in verse 2, the context is overcoming difficulties, okay? persevering in the midst of hardships. This is a positive connotation, a positive context. Thus, we translate it with the English word trials. Okay? Here in verse 13, not so much. We're talking about being tempted to fall into sin. This is a negative connotation, so we translate it as temptation. John MacArthur in his commentary on the book of James explains it this way. If a believer responds in faith and obedience to God's word, he has successfully endured a trial. If he succumbs to the flesh, doubting God, he is tempted to sin. Okay, or another commentator put it this way. It is we who turns occasions of testing into temptation. Okay, Paul explains, okay, so we see that this is... The, this word temptation here, but Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that temptation is common to man. Okay? I don't think there's anyone in here who would say that they have not never been tempted to sin or never fallen into sin, never been enticed to sin. And that's the case, like as Paul says, that temptation is common to man of, of everyone who's ever walked the earth. Okay? Everyone has at least at some point been tempted to sin in, our, in, in human flesh. Okay? You guys, when Bruce is here, are typically going through the book of Matthew, correct? Okay. Well, Matthew chapter 4 deals with, the, uh, deals with the incident of Jesus being tempted by Satan to sin. Jesus come, Jesus, Satan comes to Jesus and entices him to reject the Father's plan, to seize the crown without the cross. Jesus, being God, is able to completely reject this and weathers temptation. And we're going to come back to that passage in 1 Corinthians in a little bit. And, but we all feel the temptation to sin. And that is because, as one Christian author once stated, that it's because Christian baptism doesn't drown the flesh. Okay? We still come out of that water just, just like the kind of sinner we were when we went in. Just like when you get married. You're the same sinner you were before you walked the aisle than you did before, when you came down. And this has been the case since the very beginning. Okay, we can see, we look back in the book of Genesis, this is exactly the situation that befalls Adam and Eve. 
Okay? When we see them tempted and fall into sin, and once they do, their response is very similar to ours. We see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 12, when Adam is confronted by God for the sin that he has committed, Adam's response is, you're right, Lord, it, it was my fault. I, I, took, I take responsibility. No. He says, it's not my fault. You, you see, the woman who you gave me, by the way, you gave me a broken woman, and he blames Eve. He also blames God. And she gave me the fruit, the tree, and I ate. God turns his attention to Eve in verse 13. What is this thing that you have done? And Eve says, you're right. I really messed up. I'm sorry. No. That's not my fault. I was deceived. The serpent came and, 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 and told me the thing that I was told not to do was a good thing. And she says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. From the very beginning, humanity tries to pass off the responsibility for our own actions. Okay? Yes, Satan came and tempted Eve. But what else did the text say? And Eve looked at the fruit and she saw that it was good to eat. Okay? The words she allowed to churn in her mind. And Adam, I don't know what he was doing, looking at the floor because he doesn't want to interject in the conversation because he was right there with her. This innate wickedness okay, in us to want to force the responsibility onto someone or something else is the reason why James pens this letter. And he says again, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. What's interesting here is when, when he uses the expression tempted by God, it's a little three-word construct, tempted by God. We are to, we are to tackle tempted. We don't really need to talk about God. Okay, but that word there, by. Okay? There's more than one Greek term that can be translated as by. Okay? There is the Greek word apo, and there's the Greek word hupo. Okay? They both mean from, of, or by. But there's a nuance to them. And James chooses his words very carefully here. You see, hupo the word James doesn't use, speaks of direct agency. I punched I don't know, someone in the, in the nose. I'm the reason their face is bleeding. I'm the direct agent of that. James here uses the word oppo, which speaks of indirect agency. I swung wildly, hit the bookcase, Soccer ball rolled off the thing and hit someone in the face. Now, I didn't hit so-and-so in the face. The soccer ball did. But I'm indirectly responsible for it. This is what James is saying here. Hey, James is saying, don't even think to yourself for a moment that God can in some way even be remotely connected to your temptation. He is in no degree responsible directly or indirectly. When it is paired with the expression for no man, no man say when he is tempted, this 
again, carries with the idea that there, there can be no connection between God and between temptation. Okay? And it even extends to our thinking. Because again, remember, these are believers James is writing to, right? How many conversations do you have with believers where they say, well, well, do you know what God did to me? But you know what we can do? Sit and stew in our situation and think in the back of our mind, how could the Lord, how could you do this? And James is warning, don't even sit and think in some remote possibility that God is in some way connected to the consequences you've incurred because of your temptation. He says in verse 13, for God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. Well, what about God makes this such an impossibility? Okay, well, the language James uses expresses in the Greek that God is incapable of being tempted. He is unlike us. Okay, he is exempt from the powers of evil. When evil and God are compared on a chart, they are two parallel lines. They never able to intersect. This is an exclusive thing to God. You see, the deities of other false religions, this is not like them. Think back in what you know about the stories of the Greek pantheon, for example. I mean, this isn't the warm, loving Father Zeus we see in the Disney animated classic Hercules. The real Zeus of the Greek pantheon was an immoral, wicked, <coughs> petty person who committed horrible atrocities. And the same can be said of the Roman deities or, or, or other pagan religions. And that is because these gods are all formed by the mind of man. They reflect the mind that invented them. God's not like that. He is other from us. R.C. Sproul, in his excellent book, The Holiness of God, reminds us of this. And that his very nature... I thought that was the fire alarm for a second. Wow. Oh. Hey. That, that God is incomparably holy to us. We see, for example, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, the prophet is uh, coming face to face with God and he sees him and he sees the angels declaring God holy, 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 this, this thrice holiness that he's declared. And Isaiah sees this, and his response isn't, that's cool. Where's my phone? I'm going to picture of this. His response is to throw himself on the ground and wish that something would fall on him and kill him. He doesn't want to be anywhere in the presence of God because he sees God in his holiness and he sees himself in his wickedness. We see this again, for example, in Revelation chapter 1. Okay? The, John, the apostle, who spent those three years with Jesus, sees Jesus again after all these years, and he doesn't look at him and go, Jesus, it's great to see you. Come, let me show you where the best fish place is here. No. Revelation chapter 1 tells us, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Okay, why? Jesus came in his full glory. We can see this at his transfiguration. Or we can look at the example of Moses going up to Sinai, coming down, radiating, just radiating God's glory. It's a reflection 
um, of it, not the full glory. He's got to veil his face because it was terrifying the Israelites. Why? Because God is different from us. He is holy. We are not, and we cannot stand to look at that. We, like Isaiah, would want to be destroyed. The prophet Habakkuk in Habakkuk chapter 1 says, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. You cannot look at wickedness with favor. Hebrews chapter 7 says that, uh, he's refer in speaking of Jesus, he says, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and exalted above in the heavens. This is James' point here, that God is so different from evil, he's so different from sin, he's so pure, that it would be lunacy, it would be heresy, it would be anathema to draw any kind of even indirect connection between God and our temptation to sin. This is simply impossible. So then who is responsible? Whose fault is it? Again, he says in verse 14, it's our fault. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. This word here, okay, but each one, again, highlights that there are no exceptions. This is prevalent through the whole human race. Every person who, will, who has and will ever walk on this earth will at some point have to deal with struggles of temptation. And to highlight this, James here in chapter 14, he says, but each one is tempted. This is a present tense verb being used. This isn't past. This isn't future. You will be tempted you, or you have been tempted. You are being tempted. This is a present reality for us and it will be continuing until the Lord returns. This is the nature of the fallen condition of man. And when we... James here is saying that we fall into temptation when we're enticed by our own lust. Okay, this, this, these, these terms carried away and enticed, this is a hunting metaphor James here is using. The first expression carried away in the Greek refers to the idea of a baited trap. James here says like an unsuspecting animal, we go right for the bait. We get caught in the trap. The word enticed here carries with it the idea of being a baited hook. You go fishing, you put bait on the hook because as stupid as fish are, they don't typically bite on a naked hook. James here tells us we are like these animals who are blinded by our own desire and we walk into temptation. One commentator stating, no animal will deliberately step into a trap. No fish will knowingly bite a naked hook. The idea here is to hide the trap, to hide the hook. This is what makes sin so appealing. If we could see sin and we could see the results of it and we could see the damage it'll do, we wouldn't do it. But we're blinded by our desire. We're tricked into it by our own lust. And normally we associate the word lust with the idea of sexual desire, but it's actually a lot broader of a term than that. 
In the Greek, it can actually just mean any strong desire or longing. And this could be either good or bad. You can be zealous in your love for the word. But more often than not, it's, it's referring to a negative context, especially like this passage. You see, we cannot blame anyone besides ourselves for our own lusts. The devil didn't make us do it. It's our own making. Somebody didn't set up a situation where we had to do something wrong. And it absolutely isn't God's fault. It is ours. Okay? And to highlight this fact, when James says here, we are carried away and enticed, he says enticed by our own lust. Okay? Now, a few minutes ago, I stood up here and gave an overly complicated explanation of the translation of the word by, and I did that for a reason. Because you see here, James uses a different Greek term that's translated as by here than he did in verse 13. James used the, the word apo in verse 13 for indirectly. God is not indirectly, cannot be indirectly responsible for our sins. But here he uses the term hupo, direct agency. We are directly and enticed by our own sin. It is our fault. We are the direct agent of our own temptation. And this is a present reality for all of us. Unless we think that, that you know, we should be believers, we shouldn't be struggling with sin anymore. Even the Apostle Paul struggled with sin. In Romans chapter 7, he writes, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want to do, I do not do, and I, but I practice the very evil I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want to do, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me and the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the member of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am. Even though we've been redeemed by God, we still battle temptation. And it is, again, a temptation of our own making. It's not from some external source. The difference for us as believers, though, is we have the Lord's grace to defeat it. We can escape it. We don't have to give in. Earlier, I read a, a, just a, a snippet from 1 Corinthians 10, 13, but I'm going to read the whole verse now. It says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. We have a way out. Will we take it, though? So that's the source. The source of temptation, it isn't God. It isn't this co-worker who keeps making your life difficult. It's our fault. Hey, I, I once saw a novelty card. It said, I'm sorry that your bad behavior made me act out of character. You should work on that. Hey, no, that's not it. 
It's our fault. It's our response. The sin comes from us. What are the steps involved? What are the steps involved in falling into temptation? Verses 15 and 16. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Now we see the exact steps that are involved in temptation here that take hold in our lives. And James is going to change metaphors now. He's going to change metaphors from a hunting metaphor, which I'm not super familiar with, to the idea of childbirth. I've got five kids. I, I, I can understand that metaphor a little better. So far. Yes. Well. <laughs> He's going to refer to childbirth here. And here, lust, the strong desire, is pictured here as a newly pregnant mother whose child, death, has begun its gestation. And to underscore the reality that sin does not happen in a vacuum, hey, we see the processes involved, the little compromises that are made that result in sin. And the process of temptation takes one of many steps, and we can break them into really four main parts. A desire, a deception, a design, and, a and finally the disobedience. Desire. Deception, design, and disobedience. We see desire. Okay, the step in the temptation process where some parts is a little bit out of our control. It's more emotional than anything else. We see a shiny car go by us. Somebody comes in with their new piece of technology. Okay, their immediate reaction, ooh, what's that? Okay, the desire could be sparked in an, in an instant this is the emotional beginnings of temptation. Now, this doesn't mean that we're not at fault here because through the disciplining ourselves, through God's grace, we can change even our, our, our first instincts to things. But the wandering eye starts here. And we see something and the longing feeling begins to take over. We move into a deception. Here's where the mind begins to take over from the emotions and begins to allow our thoughts to dwell on the item of our that we desire. We begin the evaluation, the rationalization, the justification of obtaining the object that we are desiring after. This part in the process, an adulterous spouse may be setting up a list of all the really negative things about my wife. No, not That's nothing in there. I meant to say spouse. Uh, and all the really nice things about this other person. And if left unchecked, we end up into the third process, the design stage. Hey, this is where the planning begins. We, we stand in front of a proverbial map of Europe, plotting and putting things together, which unfortunately leads to the final step, disobedience. We engage our mind and our bodies in the object of our desire. We violate God's word, which is sin, and lust's child has been born. The thing we sought emotionally, dwelt on, plotted for, we have obtained. But it never has to get to this point. The whole time the Lord is throwing up exit signs on this freeway. Get off here. 
And the longer we stay in the process, the harder it is to do that. Why? Because we begin to focus not on the God, but on the object that we want. This exiting process, though, again, cannot be accomplished in the flesh. It can only be done by a genuine follower of the Lord. Hey, this is because for the unbeliever, they are still dead in sin. Hey, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins, which you formerly walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Hey, Romans 3, 10 and 12. There are none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together we become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. The reality of the situation, as one commentator put it, God is the one who activates the conscience, the soul's warning system, and it must be heard and not ignored. No one can fight the battle in their mind or imagination except for the individual believer. It is because we have access to a power outside of ourselves to do this. James warned his audience about the genealogy of sin, not to be led astray, just as a right response to trials can result in growth and spiritual maturity, he outlines he outlines that in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1. So too, weathering temptation, you leaning on the Lord to get through that can also lead to spiritual maturity. We must make every effort to guard ourselves and our minds against the temptation we come up with. Because when left unchecked, we fall into sin. It is, and as James explains here, it will ultimately lead to death. A sin leads to death. Death exists because of sin. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. When Adam and Eve first transgressed God's law, death entered the world. In Genesis 2.17, But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day in which you eat it you will surely die. They ate. And while God, in his mercy, passed over the physical death onto the animal who gave him the skins to make the cloth coverings for Adam and Eve, Physical death entered the world, but also spiritual death did. Everyone, okay, for the believer, we are saved from spiritual death, but that doesn't mean we're saved from physical death. Adam and Eve did die. The Lord spared them that day, and an animal took that, took that death but we will all physically die. We are born into this world spiritually dead, but we will all leave the world in physical death. And as a matter of fact, the Bible makes it clear that even for a believer, 
you can suffer death as a result of our own actions. For example, 1 Corinthians 11.30, Paul Tare tells us that some in the church were taking communion in an unworthy manner, and God judged them and said that some of you are sick and some of you have died for misusing communion. 1 John 5 speaks of a sin leading to death, that someone can be so wrapped up in their sin that God just takes them home. James says, do not be deceived in verse 16. Don't kid yourself. It is not your friend's fault. It is not the devil's fault. It is your fault. It is our fault and we must take responsibility for our actions, lean on the Lord and use his wisdom and his grace and this empowerment the Spirit gives us to make different choices. This is the source and the steps. What's the solution? How do we solve this problem? Verses 17 and 18. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. James now is going to explain to us the solution to this problem. And he does this by reminding us of who God is, who he really is, and who we really are. First, he explains the nature of God. He touched on this in verse 13, and he says that God cannot be tempted by sin, but he expands on it here. And first, he says, he says, this is what God does. This is who God is. This is what he does. And he tells us God is the source of all good gifts. Everything useful, everything profitable, everything beneficial, that is from God. He is the ultimate source of that. He's had no hand in temptation because he only gives good gifts. Psalm 18, verse 30, As for God, his ways are blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all those who take refuge in him. James calls these gifts good and perfect because God is totally good and perfect. He is complete. He is flawless. Everything that exists in this life that is good is from the Lord. Nice weather. Okay? Antibiotics. Hey, his restraining hand holding back societal wickedness. These are all common grace, good things he gives us. For the believer, he gives us salvation. And now what this does not mean is that if something happens to us that we may perceive as bad, is a bad gift. For example, losing a job while it's hard may actually be a good gift because he takes us someplace better. James reminds us of what God does. He gives good gifts. And we, as sinful people, can give good gifts, right? James reminds us who God is. He calls him the father of lights. This was 
an ancient Jewish title for God, which is meant to refer to him as creator, as the giver of light. The sun, the moon, the stars, planets, he created them all. He says there is no variation or shifting shadow in him. What does this tell us? God doesn't change. He doesn't change. He is immutable. And he cannot be, as James has outlined, a giver of good gifts and a tempter to evil. That doesn't work. He can't be giving good gifts one time and then he drops over here and gives evil the next. That's inconsistent with who God is. 1 John 1.5, there is this message we've received from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. We can take great encouragement in the fact that God doesn't change. Okay? I know when I was young and... I grew up in the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church is all about guilting you into doing things. That's, that's the culture they would say. Well, you did this. God is angry at you now. You must make him love you again by doing these things. That's not God. We can't make God love us more than he already does. He doesn't change who he is. He's a giver of good gifts, not a giver of temptation. That's inconsistent with his nature. And we live in a world of inconsistency. And in that inconsistent world, we have an immovable rock, a solid place to stand that does not move. And that is God. Verse 18, he reminds us of what God has done for us. The most incredible gift God has ever given humanity is salvation. <clears throat> James says, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. He chose us. Ephesians 1, picking up in verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of his glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention of which he purposed in him, with a view on an administration suitable to the fullness of of time, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. God acted freely, not according to anything we have done or would do to save us. He purposed in his own will that he was going to pull us as believers out of death and into life. And he took us from being spiritual corpses to being alive again. And we didn't want any part of this process. And when I taught uh, middle school Bible, I explained it to the kids this way. God kidnapped us out of our lives, but in a good way. It's a good kidnapping. And we didn't want to go with him. He grabbed us and pulled us kicking and screaming the whole way. And then when we got here, 
into salvation. We looked around, why did we fight this? It would be inconsistent with God's character to tempt us to do the very thing he saved us from. It would be inconsistent with the description Paul tells us. Those who advocate for freedom to still continue to sin. In Romans 6, he says, should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? May it never be! So what is the solution? James goes on, gives us the 10 steps to not sin, right? He writes a BuzzFeed article on how to to, to not sin. No. He says, remember who God is. Remember who you once were. Remember, God gives good gifts. Remember what you were saved from. Remember his sacrifice for you. And when you do that, you will flee from sin. We must take every thought captive. We must have our defenses up. And we must place ourselves daily at the foot of the cross. And anything that comes along be pale in comparison to the Lord and what he has done. Commentators say the implication of the passage is this. When we, as God's children, are so abundantly and continually showered with the most gracious, valuable, and satisfying blessings of our Heavenly Father can bestow, why would anything evil have the slightest attraction to us? You want to flee temptation? You want to resist temptation? Focus on the Lord. There isn't any room for anything else at that point. But there is nothing we could want more than to be with the Lord. This ability to resist temptation, though, only exists for believers. Unbelievers do not have access to this, to this power to resist temptation. They will fall into it time and time again, and if left unchecked, If we don't focus on the Lord, we too will fall into temptation. So, be active about being in the Word. Be active about entrenching yourself in the Word. Be active in the church. Be about the work of the Lord. Don't just merely attend, be active. Be active in prayer. And if we do those things, we'll see a real difference in our lives with regard to our temptation to evil. But when we fall, let's not kid ourselves. That was us. And we have to go to the Lord and make it right. Ask him to forgive us. We don't pass the buck onto somebody else. It's our fault we fall into sin. Let's close in prayer. Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so thankful for who you are and what you do in our lives. You didn't have to intervene on our behalf. We rightfully deserve the wrath for sin. I pray, Lord, for everyone here that we would daily focus on you on the cross, Lord, 
and not allow any competing distraction to pull us away from our communion with you, Lord. Again, I want to restate the requests that were mentioned this morning. And for the ones that weren't, Lord, every one of us could use prayer. I pray that you would act in all of our lives for our good, Lord, but for most importantly, for your glory. Again, as we transition now to the main service, I pray that you would be with us, give us open ears and open hearts to hear your word and apply it in our lives. In your son's name we pray. Amen.